there was a, once a masterful teacher, and no one had ever uh, surpassed the depth, the variety, and the enticing quality of his wisdom. His students would frequently inquire about the source from which he drew this inexhaustible store of sagacity, and he told his students that it was all written in a book that they would inherit after he was dead. The day after his death, his disciples found the book exactly where he told them to be, but there was but one page in the book and one sentence on the one page in the book, and it read, Understand the difference between the container and the content. Understand the difference between the container and the content, and the fountain of wisdom will open before your eyes. A learned Jew should not be surprised that this was the master teacher's secret of wisdom. After all, this approach is distilled into a pithy saying in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of the Fathers. Rabbi Meir said, do not look at the container, but at what it contains. There may be a new container full of old wine or an old container that does not even have new wine in it. This verse is interpreted by some to be a comment on the aged sage's appearance and wisdom. He may be unattractive, but his lifetime of experience and learning is priceless. Of course, for many of us, this insight is not new news. After all, how many times have you said, never judge a book by its cover? Truma, this week's Torah portion, contains a description of the Ark of the Covenant into which the tablets of the law and perhaps the Urim and the Tumim, the priestly uh, instruments of divination, perhaps a, a set of dice, actually, uh, were deposited. Other passages in the Bible name the Holy Ark as the throne of the invisible God. This evening, I'd like to take a little closer look at the container and the contents because covered inside and out of the ancient ark was a gold patina. That sacred vessel provided the rabbis with a rich allegory for the disparity between the inner and outer lives of people. As some of you may be aware, on June 1st, I will commemorate the 40th anniversary of my ordination at Temple Emmanuel in New York City. And since uh, that day, in these four decades, I have seen enormous, but often imperceptible changes in Jewish communal life. Way back in 1972, the memory of the Holocaust, the unflagging championing of the then almost 25-year-old state of Israel, and the Yiddishkeit that flavored Jewish existence were a front and center in the mindsets of most Jews. Intermarriage was frequently frowned upon by most rabbis, and no one anticipated the day when the last survivors of the Shoah would disappear, when Israel would no longer have universal support among Jews and most Christians, when Yiddishkeit would be limited to a hundred familiar words 
that are ubiquitous to many Americans and uh, when intermarriage would become acceptable to the majority of Jews. I can safely say that to some extent, the contents of the Jewish soul has been transformed. In recent years, I noticed something even more uh, troubling, something uh, that was uh, driven home by the recent death of pulpit rabbi Gunter Plaut. The, um, Torah commentaries in your pews. You'll notice that on the spine uh, it says uh, commentary by Rabbi Gunterplatt or W. Gunterplatt. I don't know exactly what it shows. Not the prayer books, the uh, Torah commentaries. He was the editor of our Torah commentary. He was a paragon of Jewish scholarship. And his, uh, de his uh, death a month ago, at 90, 99, uh, sparked a debate on the rabbinic chat line among my colleagues who asked, would a 21st century congregation elect Rabbi Plout or one of his intellectual giants of his era to serve as its rabbi? Uh, regrettably, I think not. Serious Jewish scholarship and learning has been displaced by spirituality, just as style has displaced substance and form has been, has been supplanted by content. My sense, excuse me, form has supplanted content. My sense is that the rabbi is no longer the intellectual who exposes Jews uh, to the wonders of Jewish thought, who teaches the meaning of rite and ritual and opens the gates of rabbinic literature. Instead, the majority of Jews, uh, the rabbi has become the officiant, the master of ceremonies, the feel-good, jovial, joke-telling entertainer. It is the container, the outward appearance of the book, the trappings that give people an elevated sense of authenticity. I see liberal Jews and their rabbis donning tefillin, wearing a, a kittle, a shroud on the high holy days and no leather on Yom Kippur, standing on tippy toes for the Kedushah, rabbis prostrating themselves before the ark on Yom Kippur, throwing candy at bar mitzvah ceremonies and turning bar mitzvah into child-centered entertainment that makes regular worshipers feel like outsiders, as well as the informality that diminishes our sense of grandeur and awe. Why don't the majority of Jews long for keen insight into the mysteries of our tradition? Why do they no longer engage in serious study? Why are brilliant sermonic offerings by rabbis frowned upon as being too intellectual? When I arrived at Congregation Emmanuel in 1993, the Pulpit Selection Committee told me that the sermon is the centerpiece of worship at Congregation Emmanuel. I suggest that that era is fading and is almost gone. Uh, and this is not sour grapes. In general, congregations have been transformed into passive audiences where the sanctuary has become the theater, the pulpit a stage, the rabbi an MC, and the cantor a vocalist. I recently spoke 
to Los Alamos theoretical physicist Jeffrey West, a past president of the Santa Fe Institute. I've invited him actually to come speak here a year from March. Um, I, I was trying to get my arms around why religion has become so thin for Jews. Dr. West, a lapsed Jew of orthodox origin, has studied 23,000 publicly traded companies and concludes that corporate growth is akin to human growth and development. Humans and corporations are born, they grow rapidly, they taper off at maturity, and begin the gradual decline that ends in death. When a company starts out, he says, it's all about the new idea. And then if the company gets lucky, the idea takes off. Everybody is happy and rich. But then the management starts worrying about the bottom line. And so all these people are hired to keep track of paper clips. This, he says, is the beginning of the end. Efficiencies of scale become outweighed by the burdens of bureaucracy. Dr. West explained that established corporations become entrenched, bureaucratic, risk-averse, and unwilling to entertain new ideas. That is why there are very few corporations that are over 100 years old. You probably could not think of more than a one or two. Morton Salt is uh, over 100 years old. Uh, the Beaumont Brewery uh, Distillery in Scotland is, uh, was created in the 1700s. Uh, but those are uh, products that don't change. In contrast to short corporate lives, I asked Dr. West about why he thinks religious institutions have such longevity. Congregation Emmanuel is over 160 years old. Uh, Judaism is 3,500 years old. The Vatican is 2,000 years old. Protestants uh, from the days of the Re Reformation in the 1500s still are around. The Mormons, 1830. He suggested that religious institutions have a different dynamic. And while he's interested in studying it, he said, I don't know quite how to gather the data as he could on 23,000 corporations. People connect, he says, to religion for a reason different than they do to corporations. And, and he suggests that people may be comforted by the perception that religion and canon are static, even if they're not. I wonder if the stakes and the expectations are so low, an accusation often leveled at the pettiness found in academia, and as a result, the demands just are not very great. People just go along with the status quo, but then they vote with their feet. I sense that low stakes accompany low expectations. You may know that the Hebrew Aharon, Ark, can mean both a ritual box where the Torah is kept, uh, but it is also the Hebrew word for coffin. Do we keep our law in a container that gives life to ancient words, or is it the burial place for the record of our sacred teachings? When I consider the changes that have occurred in American Jewish life in the last 40 years. I wonder if the importance of the container supersedes the value 
of its contents. I wonder about how many people genuinely care. The inner and outer life of the Jew may be compared to a rabbinic anecdote of a sculptor who worked very carefully on every part of the statue, including the back, which was to be set against a wall. A friend inquired about the sculptor's conscientious work on the part that would never be seen. He replied, while most people will never see the back, God will, because he sees everywhere. Though some Jews do not care about Judaism's backstory, there still are, thank God, others who are concerned about studying the core of our deep down sources of knowledge and practice. After 400 years of slavery, it was time to take leave of Egypt. Moses transported the bones of Joseph in a container that was carried alongside the Holy Ark, a coffin and an ark, one containing Joseph's bones, one containing the Holy Law. Tradition offers an, an explanation of why Joseph's bones were in one container and the law was yet in another. The Midrash concludes, because this one, Joseph, fulfilled everything written in that one, the Ark. We can only fulfill what is written in the Torah here in our Ark by opening the Torah, by studying the Torah, by savoring its words in order to understand that there is indeed a difference between the container and the contents. There is a difference <clears throat> that does matter because when we come to recognize that truth of the difference between the container and the contents, the fountain of wisdom opens before our eyes. Amen.